You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dunn. That's right. Welcome in to another dazzling episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from ESPN.com, Chad Dundas, and joining us, as always, from USA Today and MMAJunkie.com, it's Ben Folks. Ben, how are you doing? Feeling good. Feeling pretty pumped up about this special, special episode. You know what episode this is, Oh, right? I know. This I is, know what episode. This is episode number 20. Big 2-0. Of the Co-Main Event Podcast. We've been doing this for 20 weeks. Surprisingly enough, we haven't missed one yet. Uh, kind of makes it feel like we've been doing this for a long time. Yeah, I think that's kind of right up in everybody's faces who said that the CME podcast was just a fad. wasn't going to last. Yeah, all the haters on the internet who yeah. said it couldn't be done. Suck it, haters. Uh, this weekend, we all took in UFC on Fuel 5, uh, an event that aside from an ugly and unfortunate injury to Dwayne Ludwig, I think uh, lived up to all of our expectations. Well, I guess it depends what your expectations were for a Saturday afternoon fight card from Nottingham, England. I would say it surpassed whatever expectations I had for that. My expectations were that I would come over here and find you living like John Belushi in Animal House. <laughs> well, Just then, you know, mission accomplished. Dripping with chicken grease and uh, drinking beer Look, and watching Rob Roy is what it, you were doing when I came when over here. My wife was out of town. My wife was in Oklahoma to attend a wedding. When my wife goes out of town... I'm going to go to the supermarket, I'm going to buy the gross chicken strips, and I'm going to drink beer and watch Rob Roy at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. That's just what's going to go down. Everybody just better get fucking used to it. Yeah, I learned that the hard way yeah, you uh, did. this weekend. Uh, this I'll produce some chicken strips. You don't have to be a jerk about it. No, yeah. I, 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 I appreciated that. I just wasn't hungry. I'd strict eaten before diet. I came exactly. on, I'm on that strict diet. Yeah. Uh, this weekend, we've got the UFC on FX5. Uh, I'll be there to take that in in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And the week after that, we'll have UFC 153 from Brazil. So suffice it to say that there's a lot going on. This week's show, as usual, comes to you in three rounds. Round number one, the big winners from last weekend were Stefan Struve, Dan Hardy, and Brad Pickett. But how seriously should we take any of those guys as contenders in their respective divisions? In round two, with heavyweight main events both last weekend and next weekend, we feel like it only makes sense for us to take a look at the 265-pound division. Uh, Kenny Florian reminded us sort of ad nauseum this last week that, it, that stacked. it's stacked and deeper than it's ever been, which Maybe is true. Stacked. But what does that really mean? Uh, in round three, Dana White says that the haters on the internet should just shut up and let the, USD, let the UFC do its thing. Does he have a point? All that, plus, are you fucking kidding me? And just saying stuff. But first, listener mail. You know, we got a lot of good... Uh, we did. I was We got surprised. a lot of good mail this week. I mean, the, just the quality all around, it's really tough to just choose a few this week. I know. Not only uh, just according to volume, but also according to quality. We got quality and quantity this week Yeah. in our inbox. So. Some people said that it couldn't be done, and, and here we are. As a result, we're going to do four questions this week instead of three, because we, we had a hard time nailing it down. Uh, narrowing it down the first question this week comes from ben goldstein from cagepotato.com a previous employer of both you and i friend of the podcast at one time or another uh ben goldstein asks if there's one thing that dana white can't stand it's valid well-reasoned criticism do you ever worry that your brutal honesty about some of the ufc's promotional failures will land you on you two on the zufa shit list one day or are you just crossing your fingers that dana never finds out about the cme because if he ever listened to it he'd probably hate it uh i think we would be being naive to think that 
that Dana White would not find out about the stuff that we say on our podcast. Well, I assume Dana White is one of our biggest fans. I assume he's been down since episode one. Yeah, well, I hope so. I mean, we like to think Wait, that we what appeal to... What is Ben Goldstein to... suggesting? Is he suggesting that our podcast is not a must-listen in the Zufa offices? I, you know, I don't know. I, don't, I wouldn't speculate on that. Uh, to, to speak to his question, though, um, you know, a little bit, but not, not really. I would say the UFC, for all of its reputation about, you know, taking away people's credentials and stuff like that, has only done that to a few people. And typically it's been in situations where uh, those people, like, revealed information about stuff before the UFC wanted people to know about it, I think. Yeah, also I feel like it's worth noting that some of that reputation derives from what I would say was a different era in media relations for the UFC. Sure. Uh, they, a couple of years ago, got some, some new media people in there, um, and I'm just going to say, new media people are much better than the old media people, at least from our side, from working with them. Uh, a guy like Ant Evans, their, their director of communications. I mean, it used to be if you did something or said something or wrote something that the UFC didn't like, um, and they would just... You wouldn't know about it until the next time you applied for a credential and they decided to be a dick to you. Um, but with, like, Ann Evans is a reasonable man. I know because I've written several things where he has disagreed with me or said some things on the podcast, which I know Ann Evans listens to from time to time. Um, and he'll write you an email and tell you why he disagrees, but he won't, you know, try and blackball you and, and go all, like, old-school mafia style on you. Um, so I think it is a different climate. But in general, I think... If you're going to do this job and be worth a shit at it, you can't worry about that kind of stuff. Yeah, you can't, uh, you know, especially do this podcast. We couldn't do this podcast while constantly worrying about what the people in charge are going to think about it, mostly because we do almost no prep. And uh, <laughs> we would have to, we would have to like prepare what we were going to say in advance, yeah, I think, if that. we were going to yeah. try to like not, if we were going to try to sugarcoat it and not say what we actually believe, we would have to do far more prep than we actually do. Um, and, you know, it, it's possible that at some point the UFC would get mad about, about the content of the podcast. Although, honestly, I think we try to be as fair as we can. Like, uh, I certainly don't have any kind of extracurricular axe to grind about any of the people in power in MMA. And I, I feel like, you know, when we agree with them, we say that we agree with them. And when they do well, I think we give them praise. And then when they do things that that warrant criticism i think we criticize them which frankly in a nutshell is what our job is yeah. like, that's what we get paid to do when i was uh in high school in high school journalism class my awesome high school journalism professor wayne seitz or teacher i guess he wouldn't even have been a professor but uh the man who's ruined my entire life by forcing me into journalism <laughs> uh told our our class you know if everybody in the industry that you cover as a reporter thinks that you do a, a really great job you probably don't do a really great job. Yeah, at least some people should probably regard you as an asshole. Um, but then, you know, again, like with, when it comes to your relationship with the UFC, I feel like, you know, either you're going to make somebody mad or you're not, but at the same time, like, what would be the point of sticking around and, you know, maintaining this, this great relationship if you had to, you know, if not lie, at least suppress your real feelings all the time to do it. I mean, you, your service as a, a journalist is not to the people you're covering, except, you know, you owe them factual reporting and, 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 you know, an honest take on what they're doing. Your service is to the people who, your readers, your listeners, you guys, those of you out there, except for Dana White, who I also assume is listening to the CME, um, he's kind of where that Venn diagram gets tricky. 
that, that crossover audience there. But uh, if you're not, you know, giving those people something that they can count on as that is real and honest and authentic, then what are you doing? You're just kind of wasting your time collecting a paycheck. Question number two this week comes from Chris. He says, as much as I love seeing anyone and everyone making it as hard as possible on John Jones, I couldn't help but think Big John McCarthy was just a little harsh on him. He should not have made any comment such as, quote, if you want to play the game, end quote, when Belfort threw a high kick while Jones was down at UFC 152. The rules are the rules. Do you think it was a case of outside pressure making people give Jones a harder time? I don't think that it was a case of outside pressure, but I think Chris brings up an incredibly valid and not often underscored point, which is the rules are, in fact, the rules of yes. mixed martial arts. And they are so often deal dealt with as something more subjective than that. And I remember I know what he's talking about. He's talking about at the beginning of the yep. main event at UFC 152 when John Jones came out on his hands and knees and Vitor Belfort threw a kick that almost hit him in the head. And John Jones looked at big john mccarthy with kind of a what the fuck look on his face <laughs> and big john mccarthy was you know was like hey well if you want to play the game yeah jones and, and he's not the only referee to have invoked the you were playing the game uh defense there herb dean has done it before where a fighter was putting his hand down on the mat um to try and avoid getting kneed in the head and then would take it off and put it back down and take it off uh i thought it was a little more egregious in the john jones fight because it's like if by playing the game you mean expected the other guy to adhere to the rules and the referee to enforce those rules, then yeah. Yeah, everyone's playing the game. I mean, it's not even just a thing where uh, if, if it's almost as if Big John is saying, well, that's a bullshit move, John Jones, to go out there and be like, hey, the guy can't kick me in the face as long as I'm technically a downed opponent. But since John Jones knows that those are the rules and since he expects his opponent to abide by them or at least face some kind of repercussion from the referee if he does not abide by them, it's completely reasonable for John Jones to give that, hey, did you see what just happened look to, to Big John McCarthy. I mean, he didn't get kicked in the face, although I think we can agree it would have been the craziest and, and maybe awesomest disqualification of all time uh, in, in the UFC. Uh, but, you know, Big John McCarthy, you don't just get to say, hey, I think that you are manipulating the rules. The rules are the rules. Yes, absolutely. If the rule says that you cannot be hit, or I mean, if you cannot be kicked in the head while you have three points on the mat, essentially, then yeah, by all means, you should do that. Like, that's just part of sports. Everyone does that in every sport. Yeah. And it's not up to the referee to come in and, and say, he feels like you were trying to quote unquote play the game. So suddenly that rule yeah. is not enforceable. It's like if you're, when you're in football and you know, you're, you're rushing the passer and you're getting held and you'll do the thing that guys will do where you'll throw your hands up like wildly as if to draw attention to it so that the referee can see, you know, the way your jersey is being tugged and kind of it makes it harder for him to miss that. I mean, there's no reason for you to do that except to draw the penalty, but those are the rules. It's kind of the same thing we saw in the, the Bellator fight on Friday where Montana's own uh, Tim Welch uh, got, he took a, an illegal up kick. I think he took about two, one right after another, um, that kind of knocked him back. Uh, and then Big Dan Mirgliata explained through an interpreter and through gestures to his Russian opponent that that was illegal. Uh, and the, the Russian guy, you know, kind of tried to work through it uh, and then indicated that he now understood. And Big Dan made a remark like, okay, now you know. <laughs> Which, no, you knew at the rules meeting. That's why you have the rules meeting, is to explain that kind of shit. Because it's not, you don't just get to feign ignorance of the rules and, and skate by on that. Yeah, and if you're wondering why I always say always, always, always cheat in an MMA fight, 
there you go. That's why. Hell, the ref might just let you do it. He yeah. might decide that the other guy was trying to gain some kind of unfair advantage, so he gives you an unfair advantage. Or you're just like, oh, so that's illegal. Yeah, just okay, play hey, dumb. Just I got play it now. Dumb. I seriously, I got it this time. Question three this week comes from Brady Carlson, who I was just saying to Ben before the before we started taping. It seems like we do a question every week from Brady Carlson, but that's because Brady Carlson emails the podcast a lot and he has good questions. Yeah, he, he he brings the goods, man. I, I can't hate the guy for that. Brady Carlson asks, uh, Rampage Jackson said that the kicks that John Jones throws to hyperextend his opponent's knee is, quote, dirty fighting, end quote. Rampage says that it should be illegal and it's dishonorable. What do you guys think? Are those kicks dirty and should they be illegal? Ben, I'm going to let you answer this first because I know you've been fired up about it all week. I wouldn't say fired up, but I am a little baffled by uh, people's obsession with the, the linear kick to the knee. Because I keep hearing people on Twitter and on internet forums, wherever, and they're saying like, oh, you're, you're going to end a guy's career that way. That, it, you know, it serves no other purpose than to injure the guy, uh, tear out his knee and, you know, like a knee bar and a heel hook, he can tap to that. But this strike, you know, boom, you're, you don't see it and then your knee's injured and you can't do anything about it. Uh, for one, name me somebody in an MMA fight who has had their knee uh, seriously injured by one of those. Can you do it? No, I can name a guy who had his knee seriously injured by a trip takedown this week at UFC on FX5. That's so dirty fighting. We should, we should perhaps we should outlaw that. I can name you a couple guys who had their knees uh, or ligaments or whatever damaged by uh, heel hooks and knee bars. That happens pretty frequently, and yet people don't seem to have a problem with that. This it's like it's like this theoretical argument where people see it and they're like, "Well, it looks like it could injure somebody's knee. I don't like the looks of it. Looks dangerous." Uh, and they want to ban it on that basis. I mean, maybe if guys start getting serious knee injuries left and right off this, then let's take a look at it. But right now, uh, it kind of just seems like another thing to pick on John Jones about. It's weird, not only because of that reason, but don't you feel like in a in a like a broader, more macro kind of way, it's very strange to try to further parse out the difference between strikes to the body than we already have done. I mean, we all kind of agree in a gentlemanly fashion that you could, should not kick the other guy in the nuts. But <laughs> aside from that, like you can kind of kick or punch to any part of the body that you want to. So if you can punch a guy, say, in the liver or knee a guy, say, in the face, and or kick a guy in his head to knock him out cold, or, for that matter, kick a guy in the knee any other way. Yeah. I don't understand why that particular way of kicking the knee would cause any controversy whatsoever. I mean, like if, you're a, if, if you are a fan of the sport and one of your favorite things in the world is to watch a guy get knocked the fuck out, but you're really bothered by linear kicks to the knee, like, dude, come on. I don't yeah. even understand what that's about. Yeah, I don't think we'd really even be having this conversation so much if it wasn't John Jones doing it. Uh, question four this week comes from a Territo, who asks, I have to say I disagree with you gents regarding the flyweight title fight being exciting. Simply being fast and jumping all over the place isn't exciting when most of the shots are missing and barely do any damage. When watching Stan versus Bisping, I knew that there was a chance that that the fight could end by a finish by round two in the flyweight fight. I knew that I was in for this parenthetically miss, miss whoosh and parentheses for five rounds. I find a lot of media are ignorant of this, but quote unquote fans at the local bar can't take these smaller guys that serious when it looks like you could beat them up yourself. Oh brother. <laughs> well, well, Torito, uh, without knowing anything about you personally and your own, uh, fighting abilities, 
I'm just going to say, no, you could not beat them up yourself. If Demetrius Johnson or Joe Benavidez decided that they were upset with you and they wanted to beat you up, I don't think there's a whole lot you could do about it. Those guys are really, really good fighters and really, really fast. I think that they would, they would punch you in the face 12 times before you knew you were in a fight. So let's just cut that out right now. Maybe it looks like, oh, hey, I could take these guys because I'll just, you know, what are you going to you know, put, put your hand on their forehead and keep them from uh, hitting you cartoon style? But that shit ain't going to happen. It's also weird to use the Brian Stan Michael Bisping fight as a chance of a fight that could have ended by finish because I feel like that the only way that could have happened is if Brian Stan won because you know right. Bisping oftentimes goes to decision. I feel like the the emotions that Torito describes here about having the the this premonition that the flyweight fight was going to go to decision. It's the same feeling I used to get by watching Tito Ortiz fight where like especially in the latter stages of his career where he started losing a lot uh he, you know he would lose the first like round and then he would come out in the second round and you would think oh shit like he there's nothing else he can do like <laughs> it's just going to be like this for 10 more minutes and then he's going to lose a decision yeah well but then i mean also it seems like we selectively apply this thing where we're like decision equals boring yeah, or decision is, equals that's bad that's bullshit frankly that is bad i mean like you look at uh for instance, fights from this weekend, like uh, Dan Hardy and Amir Sadala. Like, you know, that's an interesting fight, a fun fight, went the distance, right? I mean, it, it doesn't necessarily... And you, or you look at uh, one of... I think somebody asked what we thought was the best fights in MMA ever. Uh, Dan Henderson and Shogun Hua. Yeah, That one absolutely. goes to the decision, and, and that was an awesome fight. So I think that's, that's a bullshit thing to, to say that just because you felt like it was going to go the distance, that means it's not going to be interesting. Plus, that fight almost got finished. Benavidez had that guillotine locked in there and looked like he was pretty close to finishing it. Don't leave it in the hands of the judges, Ben. Just don't. What if I want to? It's part of our cultural, you know, uh, worldview, collective worldview. Just don't leave it in the hands of the judges. What if I feel the judges are capable and responsible? God, I wish we could feel that way. <laughs> anyway, that's the uh, the extent of listener mail for this week. If you've got a question, comment, concern, choose your own adventure story about Ben and I that you want to send in to the podcast, do so by going to our website, comaineventpodcast.com, and clicking the link at the top of the page, email the podcast. Uh, as for right now, though, you are listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast, and we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Ben, it seemed like after about six minutes of fighting on Saturday night that Stefan Struve managed to tag Stipe Miocic with one really solid jab and suddenly realized that he was much, much taller than Stipe Miocic. And from then on, he really kind of dominated him, just kept tagging him with that jab and eventually opened up with some uppercuts and uh, ended up stumbling him in, in a way that, that made Miosic slip and then tagged him with the right hand, which kind of uh, started the, the, the ultimate end of things for, for old Stipe. My question to you is, this seems to be a topic that we talk about and that Stefan Struve talks about a lot, and that is learning how to fight like a seven-foot guy. Do you feel like this fight is a demonstration of evolution for Stefan Struve, or is this just kind of a one-off thing where he did in fact use his reach, but it's not going to uh, equate to any significant uh, step forward for him? 
You hope that it's a lesson that will stick. I mean, I know this is your dude. This is your guy, Stefan Struve. Well, that's an unfair characterization, but go well, on. Well, you know, I mean, I know that you are the president of Stefan Struve's fan club. Is that that's correct? That's not true. Okay. Well, we'll 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 proceed as if you know you're the president elect of his fan club. Then, anyway, the point is, you're right. It was kind of amazing that in the first round. A six foot four inch dude is able to kind of wade in there and hit a seven foot tall dude pretty much whenever he wants to with impunity. Uh, and you just want to let Stefan Struve know there's no reason you even need to let him get close to you. If you just, if you fought like you were seven feet tall, uh, like, you know, the first goal is to keep people away from you and then go in there and try and, you know, finish him off once you've done that, uh, he'd be a terror. It reminds me of that uh, that story about Jack Johnson being put in jail uh, for an illegal boxing uh, exhibition with his opponent, who actually knew how to box, and then his opponent teaching him over many days in jail uh, the finer points of boxing and telling him, you know, a man who moves like you doesn't need to ever take a punch. It's kind of the same for Stefan Struve. A guy who's as tall as you, uh, if he uses that range, uses those arms, uses that length, uh, he rarely needs to get hit. You know, it's just a matter of learning to use that. And granted, Stephen Stuber's still young. He's, what, 24? He's 24. Yeah, I knew you would know that because you're his guy. That's not uh, true. But, uh, yeah, he, he. so maybe, you know, this was the moment when it clicked. Because it did seem like when he came out there for the second round, he realized, oh, shit, I could just stand way out here and beat the hell out of this guy. Yeah. Uh, just watching Stefan Struve and... Stipe Miocic face off was like that scene in the movie Game of Death where Kareem Abdul Jabbar <laughs> fights Bruce Lee and ends up front kicking him in the chest and leaves that gigantic dirty footprint on awesome. the front of his yellow and black jumpsuit. Yeah, they don't make uh, him like that anymore. And that's what you think until you realize that Stipe Miocic is six foot four and yeah. 240 pounds. Yeah. I mean, and there was a moment where uh, Stipe caught one of Stefan Struve's kicks. And then kind of just out of reflex, caught it with his left arm and then just went to throw a punch with, with his right hand. And the punch missed by like three or four inches just because Struve is, is that much taller and, and bigger. Uh, you know, that's the kind of stuff I feel like he gets away with some of that just on accident. Right. The, the, just the accident of his height. And now he's got to learn to, to use it as a weapon rather than just, you know, getting by with it occasionally. But I mean... He did seem to, to come to that realization, and that's a, a pretty big win for him to go out there. I mean, you know... It's the biggest win of his UFC career so far, I would say, for sure. Yeah, yeah I, I would too. And I think it shows that, uh, you know, maybe a little more poise that to go out there, things aren't going well, and to fix it in the second round, uh, and then really show that, that killer instinct when you have the guy hurt. And he, he then he went after him and, and put him away. Yeah, we talked about this a little bit on the podcast last week, but I feel like we have a tendency to look at Stefan Struve like he is a known commodity just because this was his 12th fight in the UFC, which when you think about it is kind of ridiculous when you consider like how young he is and what a work in progress he still appears to be. But uh, I feel like he's a guy that could potentially make strides just because of his youth and because it seems like the fixes to his game are not necessarily that tricky, at least from the outside looking in. And, and you know, I guess just potentially if he does figure out how to use his height more to his advantage, he's a guy that, that certainly has power in his hands. Uh, it seems to have a fairly wily submission game off his back. 
uh, appears to be one of the few heavyweights who always shows up in shape and is ready to go at a decent pace for, you know, three rounds. Um, do you feel like you can buy him as a legitimate heavyweight contender at this point, or is it just sort of wishful thinking? Do you think that, that thinking that he could evolve to the point that he'll be able to get in there again with Junior Dos Santos or a guy like even Cain Velasquez and, and make it a fight is kind of wishful thinking? I think his chin is too much of a concern still to think that uh, he would be able to hang in there very long with Junior Dos Santos. I mean, that's one of the things that uh, we know Junior brings to the table is a whole lot of power and you know the footwork necessary to get inside on, on a big guy with a long reach, even a big guy with a long reach who knows how to use it. I think Junior Dos Santos is still capable of getting in there and landing one on him. And Stefan Struve is knockoutable. I mean, I know he said yeah. that he, he knows he has a chin or is absolutely sure he has a chin. What we've seen uh, in the past kind of indicates the contrary. And uh, that's not the kind of thing that tends to get better over time. You know, if, you were, if you're getting dropped with, uh, you know, one big right hand when you're 22, it's not as if, you know, when you're 30, you're fine. It usually goes the other direction. So that, I think, is the biggest concern and a concern because what are you going to do about it? Yeah. Dan Hardy also appeared to have fleshed out his game a little bit uh, when we saw him. In his fight, uh, he mixed in some takedowns. Uh, he he moved his head a little bit, which is a big, pretty big step forward for him. Since uh, when I saw him fight against Chris Lytle in person in I believe Milwaukee, man, it was like Dan Hardy kind of. I'm not gonna say he enjoyed getting punched in the face, but it was as though he was just not concerned with it. Yeah. It was like he was just gonna put his face there, and if you wanted to punch it. Yeah, he wasn't. That making, was fine with him. He wasn't making any decisions on the basis of whether or not you were going to punch him in the face because of it. Yeah, he was just going to do what he was going to do. So it's probably a little bit overstating the case to think that a victory over Amir Sadala is something that we should put a tremendous amount of weight behind. But if Dan Hardy suddenly shows some head movement and a fondness for the takedown, is he a guy that might be able to? pop back into that welterweight top 10 or, or even work his way into a position where he would get another fight with George St. Pierre. You know, I don't know if I see him getting another fight with George St. Pierre, but I do think that he is better than that four fight losing streak made him look. I think that was one of those instances where, uh, you lose a couple and the pressure of trying to win and trying to fight a certain kind of fight to please the UFC and to please the fans uh, caught up with him. I think, you know, I talked to him about that Carlos Condit fight where he said, you know, he just felt like, oh, there's no way this guy can hurt me. Screw it. I'll go out there and, and, and trade bombs with him if that's what he wants. And, you know, you saw what happened there. He found out he was wrong. So I think, you know, psychologically, some of that stuff built up for him. Um, I also think, though, that it's a good uh, kind of lesson for us that, you know, the UFC's tendency to say, oh, you lost three in a row, you're done. Or, you know, sometimes you get to four in a row, we'll cut you. Yeah. You know, get out of here. And they didn't do it with Dan Hardy because of his fighting style mainly. Um, and, you know, probably also because they liked the guy. But it was also that fighting style that got him in trouble in the first place. Yes. Uh, and so and it's weird. It's like, you know, and, and look, it worked out. They gave him a chance. You know, he, he fixed his problems, came back, won, wins two in a row. That, that technically counts as a streak. Uh-huh. Yep. You know, yeah. so, uh, so, so he, he's, he's back on, on the right side there. It makes you wonder about some of the other guys who they've cut, um, maybe because their their fighting styles weren't as exciting, uh, and they didn't get that same leeway that he got. 
you know, if Dan Hardy can learn to do some other stuff rather than just go in there and try and, you know, slug it out, um, then why couldn't, you know, why couldn't we give some of those other guys a chance? It's always weird to me how the UFC wants this, like, risk-taking, wants you to put on a show and to go out there and, and give the fans their money's worth, but at the same time uh, is a little quick to, to pull the plug on you if that risk-taking goes against you a couple times. It sounds like you're talking about Gerald Harris right now. Well, I, well Gerald Harris is one of the guys that I talk about there. Yeah, they, I know they, Gerald they, Harris is your guy. Oh, here we go. I know no. that you're the president of the Gerald Harris fan club yeah. sitting over there. Well, I'm also the treasurer and uh, the vice president. And your Gerald Harris t-shirt right now. <laughs> but, I mean, th- those are like there are those examples out there where the UFC said, we didn't like this guy's fighting style even when he was winning. So the first time he loses or, you know, if he loses a couple, boom, he's out of there. Whereas with Dan Hardy, hey, we like him even when he loses, so he gets to stick around and keep losing until he eventually pulls it together by doing something else other than the thing that you liked him for. It, it's weird. Is what it, I'm yeah, it's, it's a little bit strange. I, I know you probably didn't watch the first episode of The Ultimate Fighter this year, uh, but it was very strange in the way that uh, Dana White kind of just came out and flat told the guys on the show, and this is the when there's the, they're in the round of 32 and they're just fighting to get into the house, hey, I don't want to see any boring fights. Like go out there and, and let it all hang out. Like I don't want to see a boring any boring grappling matches out here. And then like continued for the entire, I think that was a two hour show actually, uh, for the entire duration of it to kind of like every time a fight went to the ground and it, there was like even a semblance of of a lull, he would be like, oh this is boring. These guys aren't doing anything, and and kind of used that as the first point of contention with Roy Nelson and what I suspect will be a season long uh, plot line, but. Especially in a situation like that, man, at the end of the day, the important thing is still to win, right? It's yeah. not just to... Well, and see, that's the thing where MMA is a different business than, like, football or, or baseball or something where, you know, like you think about when the Baltimore Ravens won the Super Bowl on the basis of just stifling defense and an offense whose job was not to fuck up. Yeah, they were boring that year. Ugh, I don't even consider them the Super Bowl <laughs> Yes, yeah, it's not like there are any Ravens fans who are being like... Yeah, we're the Super Bowl champs, but I don't know, man. I didn't really feel like watching any of it. Like that just doesn't really exist in other sports. The way MMA has to sell tickets, and it's not like you know you just get people coming out to see the hometown uh, as easily as you do in, in team sports. So there is that different element. But that's look at a guy elsewhere on the card. Look at look at Demarcus Johnson. Right, he's a guy who's always in entertaining fights and really prides himself on it. Yeah. Also lost three in a row. Lost you know what four of his last five. Uh, and so now is probably sitting around thinking that he's in danger of being cut. And, you know, he stepped up and did him a favor here, so they probably won't cut him at least right away. But there's that, that those competing forces there on the fighters where, hey, the UFC calls. You want to go in there. You want to do what they want. You, you want to say yes. You want to put on a show that they can be proud of. Um, at the same time, sometimes that's not going to be to your advantage. And uh, if you lose too many, then... It, it does become about wins and losses as far as the UFC is concerned. Uh, and if you just focus on winning at all costs, even if it's boring, then you know that doesn't do you get, get you where you want it to either. So, uh, it, I mean, I feel for the fighters sometimes. It seems like the UFC is asking you know, for contradictory things there at times. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Brad Pickett. I guess maybe as part of that conversation that we were just having, he's a guy who is 34 years old has had three fights now in the UFC, is 2-1, and one, but in each of those fights has won a post-fight bonus of some kind or another. Uh, he's got two 
fight of the night bonuses, and then he won the knockout of the night bonus bonus for his knockout this past weekend. Uh, is he the guy? I don't know. Maybe this is. A, is he the guy who has the highest ceiling of the three guys that we've talked about? Just because um, he he fights in in maybe a division where they're 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 kind of scraping around for contenders, and he does have that one punch finishing ability uh, that that can bring him back in fights that he appears to be behind on points up to that point. Well, I mean, he did lose that fight to Hen Barrow, but yeah. as we know, Hen Barrow is a monster. He is a monster. Hard to beat that guy. Yeah. Uh, so, but I think one of the things that Pickett has going for him, especially in that division, is not just that he has the ability to, to end the fights, but his fighting style, when you watch him, it's like he, he wants to make sure somebody gets hurt. And yeah. <laughs> he'd, he'd rather it be you, but he wouldn't terribly, you know, mind it if it was him. That's kind of the way he fights, and that's what, you know, when we were watching it, and I think you made the comment that it didn't look good for Brad Pickett. No, it didn't. On. It didn't. It looked like he was going to be the one going to sleep there. Uh, but, you know, he just keeps charging in, keeps coming after you, and, you know, as you said, he, he's got that power so that he can, he can make that work. I think that that's going to net him more opportunities uh, than you know, maybe some of the other guys in that division. I don't know if he'll be able to capitalize on those opportunities against the the elite of the division, though. Yeah, it seems to me like that particular fighting style, uh, the fall behind and then one, land one big shot fighting style, doesn't work when you get uh, up into the upper echelon of these divisions, or at least has a high tendency to to desert you when you need it the most. I mean, it's not always going to work. Yeah, but he's got that hat. He does have that hat. He does have like, a like a like Indiana Jones meets Britney Spears kind of hat. That was a very interesting description yeah. of yeah. Brad Pickett's hat. I mean, and, you wear a hat like that in public out all the time. You better be ready to defend its honor. That's all I'm saying. And it seems like he probably is. Yes, if I absolutely. had to guess, uh, that that'll probably do it for our discussion in round of round uh, number one. Coming up in round two, we'll talk about another division that in the past has has suffered from a lack of depth, and that would be the heavyweight division. That's in round two, which starts right now. Round two. Well, we talked about Stefan Struve and his prospects in the heavyweight division, but this weekend... We get another heavyweight main event as the technically still undefeated Travis Brown takes on technical former champion Antonio Bigfoot Silva. Uh, Ben, as we said in the intro, during last week's UFC on Fuel card, uh, Kenny Florian kind of continually made the point that the UFC heavyweight division is suddenly deep. Uh, Do you buy that? Because I, I think while the division is obviously deeper than it ever has been before, especially after the introduction of some of those strike force guys, it's still not necessarily the strength of the 265 pound class. Well, it is deep for MMA's heavyweight division as a whole. I mean, I think for a while we thought that the, the, the Zenith was pride's days of, of heavyweights when you had Fedor and Krokop and Barnett and, and big nog and those guys, I think, this beats that. I think you have more quality heavyweights uh, in the UFC right now. But I do think that when you really look at it, it's five or six good heavyweights and then a bunch of other guys who are, no, they're not bad. They're not bad. It's no longer just a bunch of, you know, fat guys the way it used to be at a certain point there for the UFC heavyweight division. 
Yeah, I think that you're right, though. It is shallow in a sense that in other deeper divisions, I'm not sure you would see guys like Shane Carwin, who hasn't fought in in a long time, hanging around. Um, you know, Frank Mir, who's coming off uh, a stretch of of kind of bad luck for him. Uh, but yeah, there's some improvements have been made, and I think that there's at least some palpable reason to be sort of excited about the heavyweight division. I'm not sure that. Uh, the claims of, of Stefan Struve cracking the top five are yeah, valid know. at this point. And I, I think, think that so. I think that that speaks kind of to to the, the good shape that the division is in since you've got, you know, guys like Dos Santos, Velasquez, Overeem, who might be semi damaged goods at this point, but seems like a guy who's still going to be uh, promoted as one of the top fighters in the division. Daniel Cormier, obviously, still creeping on a come up yeah. and, and uh, you got Fabricio Verdum yeah, in there. Verdum still, still sort of hanging around the top of the division. I mean, that's what I talk about when I'm saying like the top, you know, five or so guys. Uh, if you take those guys, uh, you know, Dos Santos, Velasquez, Overeem, uh, Daniel Cormier, Fabricio Verdum. I mean, that's, that's some pretty stiff competition right up there at the top. Uh, yeah, it's a far cry from the days when Gan McGee would, would roll his way into right. a heavyweight shot, heavyweight title shot. Yeah. Or when uh, Tim Sylvia was out there, you know, step step jabbing against Andre Arlovsky every other fight. So, yeah, it is in much better shape now than it ever has been. I also though think that uh, it's finally started to get to the point where you're seeing more than a few really good athletes in there. I mean, I still think Stipe Miocic is is a really good athlete, and I think yeah, he's, sure. he's probably going to come back. I mean, he's still pretty inexperienced in MMA, so. Uh, I think, you know, that seven through fight could just be a, a positive learning experience for him. And you got guys like Cormier, uh, you know, you, you got guys like Cain Velasquez. I think that you're seeing a different kind of fighter uh, mm-hmm. excel in the heavyweight division rather than just, you know, big bruisers out there. Uh, yeah. I think that's encouraging. Yeah, interesting because just a couple of years ago, uh, you know, when Brock Lesnar was the champion and, and his top contenders were guys like Carwin and you saw uh, Frank Mir go through what you might consider to be kind of a personality crisis where after he lost to Lesnar at UFC 100, he really ballooned up in weight, then decided that that wasn't the wasn't good for him, kind of came back down again, eventually kind of ended up settling somewhere in the middle, I think. Uh, but, it, it, you know, during that era, it seemed like the future of the heavyweight division was going to be these these giants, these real big, you know, muscle-bound behemoths, guys like Lesnar who were just going to go out there and not only not just overpower guys, but also make the margin for error so slim that they would be able to win fights, you know, just on the basis of a guy making one mistake, kind of the way Lesnar beat Randy Couture or kind of the way he beat Frank Mir in their second fight where, you know, he got Frank Mir in a position on the ground that against almost any other guy wouldn't be that dangerous, but because Lesnar hits so damn hard, uh, you know, he was able to do a lot of damage from it. We've kind of seen that flip now. I don't know. I mean, have we, I mean, look at a guy like Travis Brown. Like, you know, that's one of the guys they're looking to as like, hey, here's a guy coming up that, that uh, might be a serious threat someday. And I mean, I think it's instead of it just being like huge dudes, now it's like tall, uh, you know, power dudes. Like like Travis Brown is like 6'7". You got, you know, Stephen Struve like 6'11". Uh, Bigfoot Silva's no, no small guy either. You know, you got a lot of, it seems like a contest now between like, the dudes who are around six and a half feet tall or bigger, you know, Overeem uh, in there um, and are just kind of big bully type fighters and dudes who are the smaller, quicker athletes like Cain Velasquez or Daniel Cormier, who 
I mean, if you're a six foot two inch, like 230 or 240 pound heavyweight, you pretty much just better prepare your answer for why you don't cut down to 205 right now because you're going to be asked about it for the rest of your goddamn career, which seems like it's got to get old for those guys. Yeah, I was going to say, though, the guys that we've seen at the top of the division since Lesnar fell off have been those smaller guys, guys like Dos Santos, Velasquez, Cormier in Force. You mentioned uh, Stipe Miosic. Uh, and yet, as you say, there are the behemoths still kind of hanging around in the wings, most notably Overeem, who I think when he comes off suspension is probably going to find himself in a, in a title fight, you know, sooner rather than later. Uh, I suppose everything is cyclical, but do you think that... Uh, it's just, it, it, do, you, do you think that what we're seeing now with the smaller heavyweights is going to remain a trend or are we eventually going to get back to where we were a couple years ago where we thought maybe those guys like Velasquez, Dos Santos, Miosic would eventually end up coming to their senses in a way and cutting down to light heavyweight? Well, I think for a lot of those guys, like if you look at a guy like Daniel Cormier, he doesn't gain a whole lot by going down to light heavyweight. For one thing, it's a tough cut, a cut that, uh, you know, did him no favors physically when he was making it uh, for the Olympics. Although, you know, he'll tell you and, and Kevin Jackson will tell you that they were doing it the wrong way back then. Uh, and he that's why he paid for it. But uh, if you go down, if you're Daniel Cormier and, you know, he's what, 5'10", 5'11", mm-hmm. uh, if he goes down to 205, fights a guy like John Jones, he's still giving up a, a height and a reach advantage and maybe giving up a speed advantage, which he would have over most of the big guys. So I think that there's always going to be that that home for those guys who are around that size, who are you know in the 230 or 240 range where, hey, if you feel like you're not going to be shoved around, if you feel like you know whatever your game is, whether it's that you have the quickness to avoid takedowns or that you're such a damn good wrestler that you're just not going to end up on your back very often, that, yeah, I think you can still make a go of it. Uh, I do think, though, that... We haven't heard the last of the behemoths. Some yeah. of those guys, I mean, if you if you learn how to use that game properly and you learn how to deal with the the smaller guys, uh, those dudes can be dangerous. I think Overeem uh, is going to be a prime example of that. Yeah, I guess there's always sort of some idle talk about sticking another weight class in there at 220. I don't know if, if that would necessarily prove to be a good thing or a bad thing, but uh, it seems like one that the UFC is not particularly stoked about. It seems like they want yeah. to uh, keep keep adding the smaller weight classes. I mean, do you want a new weight class? It's a lot to, to, for people to keep in their heads right now. No, I'm not a huge proponent of it. I also don't think it's it would be as big of a cataclysm as some people act like it would be. You just want there to be a cruiserweight division so that Chris Jericho can come in and <laughs> insist on seeing everybody weighed before he fights them. Oh, man, you can't stop the lion tamer. <laughs> I'm telling you. Uh, well, that, that's our discussion here, the heavyweight division. Before we move on into round number three, we'll go ahead and do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? Uh, one of the more popular recurring segments on the podcast, of uh, fairly self-explanatory, I think. Ben, I know you've got one prepared. Why don't, why don't you get us started? Okay, well, mine has to do with the MMA debut of one Dave Bautista, oh. uh, who many of you might remember from pro wrestling fame. Now, I talked to Bautista uh, last week, found him to be surprisingly reasonable and humble and interesting to talk to. Um, however, the fight promoters who were putting together this event, uh, I mean, they ran into a little trouble when his original opponent was put in jail and then got out and then apparently violated the terms of his probation and got put back in, leaving them with no opponent for this fight. Um, I was trying all weekend to get them to tell me who was going to fight Batista. He's fighting this weekend, so you'd think that you kind of got to nail that stuff down. Uh, they gave me the runaround on it all weekend instead of just giving me a name. Today they announced it. 
Vince Lucero is going to fight Dave Batista. Some breaking news here on the podcast. I don't know if it'll be breaking news by the time people listen to the podcast, uh, but Vince Lucero, uh, he's you might call him a journeyman. Yeah, uh, hey, just out of curiosity, when was the last time Vince Lucero won a fight? According to ShareDog, uh, my go-to source for fight records, last Vince Lucero victory came April 18th, 2008. Wow. Since then, I believe he's lost nine uh, with one draw against JoJo Thompson. Uh, Vince Lucero, I mean, he's been around. One thing, dude has 45 fights. His 45. career record of 20, 22, and 1. <laughs> I don't even know how this fucking fight is getting licensed. Dave Batista, who's never had an MMA fight, is going to fight a dude who's had 45 fights. Granted, has not done super well in all of them. But are you fucking kidding me? That's your fight? You spend all weekend trying to find somebody and you find a guy who is 20 and 22 and 1 to fight a guy making his MMA debut? Are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? Uh, my Are You Fucking Kidding Me hits a little bit closer to home this week. Man, are you fucking kidding me, Gunnar Nelson? You come into the UFC as one of the more highly touted prospects in your division. You get a big win. Now, granted, I know it was over an undertrained and overweight Demarcus Johnson, but the way you acted in the cage after the fight, it kind of made me think that your dog died. <laughs> I, know, I know about the, the old cliche, act like you've been there before. But in this case, dude, you actually have not been there before. Like, <laughs> would it kill you to just, I don't know, smile because... Like a little fist pump, maybe? Yeah. Like the way the bit? guy acted, it made me just wonder, like, is he doing okay? Like, <laughs> do we need to be worried about him? So, I guess, man, are you fucking kidding me, Gunnar Nelson? Are you fucking kidding me? Also, am I the only guy who hears Gunnar Nelson's name and doesn't have the Aaron does have the the opening guitar riff from After the Rain go through his head? You are definitely not the only guy, but I think that this is one of the the things that's going to divide MMA fans along an age barrier. Yeah, people who have heard of Nelson. <laughs> yes. How pissed do you think Gunnar Nelson of Nelson is that if you Google Gunnar Nelson, probably what you get are a bunch of Gunnar Nelson's MMA highlights. You know, he had his moment. He had his time in the sun, and now it's time to let a new Gunnar Nelson take over. Circle of life, man. <laughs> well, that's Are You Fucking Kidding Me for this week. Uh, we will be back momentarily to get into our discussion during round number three. Round three. Jed, the UFC is continuing its global expansion this year. Uh, just came off uh, an event in Nottingham, England. Uh, headed to Rio de Janeiro here soon. Then Macau, China. Uh, then, of course, back to Montreal. Eventually going back to Australia, to the Gold Coast. And finishing up the year like they do back home in Las Vegas. But in this time of many, many events and many, many injuries and many, many countries and many, many cards being reshuffled, seems like maybe Dana White is getting a little sick of hearing about it uh, because he went off on a little mini tirade uh, after the press conference uh, following the UFC on Fuel event in Nottingham uh, where he seems like he's kind of getting sick of those of us in the media saying, here's what the UFC should do and here's what it shouldn't do. Here's his quote. Quote, I can't tell you everything we're doing, so when I try to explain it, it's half-assed. When I see reporters back home trying to write out our business model and here's what they need to do, shut the fuck up. It drives me crazy. They have no idea what's going on and they try to jump in the middle and talk about what's wrong and how to fix it. 
these guys that start writing these stories about what's broken, it drives me nuts. Then, later, a quote later in the story, you have to sit back and just watch. We're changing everything up. Things are going to be com- done completely differently than they were. The answer isn't do less shows. Mm-hmm. Yeah, honestly, in a way, I feel his pain a little bit here yeah. because, you know, just think about how often as journalists you or I get an email or a Twitter message or an internet comment from someone with no frame of reference being like, this guy sucks. He doesn't know what he's talking about, et cetera, et cetera. I mean that, and then imagine like how often that happens to Dana White. It's got to be, I mean, it's got to make it seem like that's what the entire internet is Yes, to a guy like Dana Cat White. Cat pictures and people telling you how to do your business. So in a way I understand his frustration because a lot of people, including you know, journalists, including maybe us, don't fully understand the business model and we don't know about all the plans that they have. I would say, though, as an aside and as like the kind of the second side of this coin, that one of the reasons that nobody understands the UFC's business model and that we don't know their plans is that they don't tell us. Yes. And they make a point of not telling <laughs> yes, us. Yes, that's not an accident. In fact, I think that is their business model is to kind of not tell us about it. So... If you're going to be that kind of secretive about your business, which is totally their right as a privately held company, it is going to open you up to this kind of criticism. And if all of the things that they, that they, you know, if all of the points that they continually make about the problems, not too many shows, the numbers are still good. Like the, you know, we pay the fighters more than anybody in the public knows if all of that is true it almost seems like it would save them a lot of headaches to be a little bit more transparent wouldn't have to have keep having this conversation yeah but it doesn't seem like they're going to do that and i i understand their reasoning why it's just that you know every time we see quotes like this or every time uh somebody from that company kind of goes off on a story that they read they feel is inaccurate or whatever i always think like well man just just tell us what the truth is. Just tell us like what is the real deal because that's yeah. And, and that to me is the thing where you kind of have a choice. You can either uh, explain your business to people, open it up, make it a little trans- more transparent so that people can see what you're doing, where you are and where you're trying to get to. Or you can take shit from people who are going to speculate and try and go off of what they do know. Uh, and at times, you know, don't get the full picture. You don't get to have the best of both worlds there, though. You don't get to say, I'm not telling you guys what's going on, and you're idiots because you don't know what's going on. You know, that, and it's not as if some of this stuff, when we talk about you know, the number of shows that the UFC is doing or where it's, put, it's putting some of its efforts, I mean, we, we might not know what the UFC has planned for, the, for you know, five years from now, but we know what it's doing now. Yeah. We know what it's done this year. You know, we can look at that. That's not something that's so secretive. I mean, you don't have to have access to all the UFC's top secret classified files in order to look at how many shows have gone on this year and how the roster has been stretched a little bit thin. I mean, I think that's a valid criticism. I don't think that uh, just and Dana White loves to do that kind of thing where he says, "You guys know what we you, you don't know what we have planned. We got some shit. Oh, it's gonna blow your fucking mind. Yeah. It's gonna fix everything, and then you're all gonna look like idiots. And then you know, sometimes it's just something kind of kind of mediocre." Something where he says, oh, wait and see what we do. And then what they do is, you know, more of the same stuff, basically. You yeah. know? So 
that is that kind of stuff has happened in the past and it kind of hurts the, this claim but yeah i do understand how it's got to be annoying when everybody thinks that they can tell you uh you know how you should fix your business at the same time he's got to know enough about media to know that we're not going to be like well we're not sure so we're not writing anything until the ufc tells us what we should write and then we'll jump right. I mean, sometimes Dana White has made those arguments in the past where he's like, I can't believe these people are writing about this. We got a, a show coming up to, to promote. Why aren't they writing about that? Well, because our job is not exclusively to hype upcoming pay-per-views. In fact, that's not the job at all. <laughs> well, I mean, we're going to write about the upcoming fights and you're going to write about the fights that just happened. You right. know, that's just, that's going to be part of the deal all the time. But at the same time, uh, sometimes it seems like Dana White thinks that the media is there to serve his interests. Uh, when that that is not the case at all yeah i think you make a valid point in saying that like you know when we write stuff that is critical of what we see going on in the industry at least i know from my point of view i'm not doing it in a way where i'm like hey i've got all this inside knowledge and i know things that the men in charge don't even know and like i know the answer i'm doing it in more of a way that's like hey i'm a consumer of this product yeah. you know like i'm the guy who's been watching your show since it started and i'm technically the guy that you're supposed to be marketing it to and right i can there in the see demo? yeah just barely at this point but still <laughs> in the demo uh I can see with my own two eyes that things like the ultimate fighter aren't working anymore because I used to watch it all the time. Now I barely watch it. And you can look at ratings numbers for that kind of stuff. I mean, that's not super secret either. Like we can see that, that the general interest is declining. Yeah. I mean, or at least that the numbers are down. So, I mean, you, you can, you can say what you want about, about the, the business model or the plans and the stuff that's coming up in the future. But like, as a fan of the sport, I can see that it's different now than it used to be in some ways f for the better. And in some ways, I don't, you know, maybe not for the better, but it's also a little bit just, I mean, just because you were successful in the past doesn't mean you're going to be successful in the future too. So it's like now that we're dealing with what is considered to be, or, or I guess what we can look at and kind of say, it's a kind of a different ball game now because of the Fox deal, because of, you know, frankly, because of the economy and more of a, a, a wide angle look like, so oh, here we go. It, I don't Chad know. Dennis just says because of the economy, <laughs> I don't know that like the answer is to tell people, Hey, we did this, but you know, we've always been successful at this. We're always going to be successful in the future. Like we're dealing with a different ball game now. So I do think it would help their cause a little bit to be a little bit more transparent and be like, Hey, the, here's something we're going to do. This is something we're going to do. This is something we're going to do. Doesn't it sound awesome? Well, and I think it's worth noting too, that like you said, that we are kind of right there in the, the wheelhouse for the people that the UFC has and should appeal to. Uh, we also, as people who cover MMA, we like this sport. We yeah. want to see it thrive and want right. to see it do well. So it's it's not as if you know we're the stereotypical uh, general sports columnist in the new town that Dana White has come into that he loves to rail against uh, whenever they write a critical column. Also, though, you know, like the international expansion thing, I get emails and and tweets from people all the time, especially like the UK fans who say, "Look, hey, we were you know the, some of the first people to embrace the UFC when it." You know, the Zufa-owned UFC, when it, it left its, its home in North America, uh, went over the ocean, and it used to be two or three shows a year in England or somewhere in the UK. And now, they get one a year. You know, for the past couple of years, it's been pretty consistent. One a year, 
better see it while it's here, and it's not exactly, you know, the huge shows anymore. I mean, this this was a good event in Nottingham. Uh, it was not necessarily the most star-studded crowd, but it had good fights, and it delivered. At the same time, though, uh, if I'm a, a fight fan in London, I definitely feel now like, hey, you know, they, they used this when they needed us, and now Brazil's opened up, and so they're going to go do three shows in Brazil, and then they'll get into China, and then they're going to try and do three shows in China, you know, and a couple in Japan. So, it's just you set up this kind of expectation where it's impossible to make everybody happy. You can't be everywhere at once. And a lot of these people, I mean, I know you can say, hey, they can still watch it on TV. They don't buy pay-per-views. They just get like cable packages and watch it. Yeah, at like 4 a.m. for a lot of them. So, I mean, those people are die-hard, hardcore fans. I mean, when I was in Sweden, I was talking to guys and they were saying, yeah, our big issue is either you stay up and party all Saturday night and watch it. Um, or, you know, you wake up super early on Sunday morning to watch it, and then, you know, you got your wife or your girlfriend complaining about you sleeping all day on Sunday. Uh, you know, that's, that's the level of fandom that you're dealing with over there. So it's understandable those people want to see a live show and want to see, like, one that doesn't feel like leftovers. Uh, so I get that. It, it's just, and it is hard. I understand why the USC would feel like, hey, you're taking shit from all sides no matter what you do here. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I mean... That's just going to be part of the part of the business when you're you're trying to cultivate these consumers all around the world. Right. Yeah. It's a little bit strange to me that where the UFC goes is always such a big topic of conversation. Like I know, I guess fans of the sport in in various countries want the chance to be able to go and see live. But like we live in Montana, UFC ain't never going to come here. And frankly, you don't think so? it never even the Adams Center. Well, I'll tell you what: if they come here, they're going to make the mistake and go to Billings, and oh. we we're not going to drive. Six hours to go over. And I hear they don't even go to the Billings. streets and Billings. I'm not going. Uh, but it, you know, it never crosses my mind. I'm never like, oh man, it sucks so bad that the UFC never comes here because it's a TV sport. I watch it on TV. Don't you think you might think that if you you did not go to a few events a year uh, in other cities, or if you did not at least have that option, like. I mean, I remember you went to an event in uh, Atlantic City once, like before, you know, you, wasn't that Atlantic City that you went to that one, or was that in Vegas? I, I've been to Vegas. I've not, I've actually never been to Atlantic oh, okay. City. Okay. But you went to a couple in Vegas just as like fans, you know, sure, like buying yeah, tickets yeah, and going yeah. down there. So it's yeah. like, you have that option. I mean, that's just, that's more similar to somebody from, you know, London going to Nottingham to, to see the UFC when they come. You, you have the option to go. Um, I don't know. If you... If you live on an island where the UFC does not go there, uh, or to any neighboring islands, you might feel differently about it. Yeah, I suppose. It's just not one of my hot-button issues, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. I just don't. Not like the economy? Yeah, not like the economy. That's one of your As you know, I'm totally well, into that. things have been tough lately, you know, because of the economy. Right. Ugh, God. I don't know why I show up to do this every week. Uh, I guess that's our discussion for round three. Um before we get out of here, though, we're going to uh, get into just saying stuff. The recurring segment on the podcast where Ben and I make statements that we are then not asked to defend uh, back up in any way because at the end of the day, we're just saying stuff. Even though people are going to email us and send us tweets yeah. asking us to, to talk about it. A lot of people seem to miss the concept. It's like they didn't even stuff. listen to it. Yeah. Uh, I'll go first here. I'm just saying that since Chad would not let me do a well-rounded fight fan on this edition because Chad realized that he is not a well-rounded fight fan and has nothing else to talk about other than, than this bullshit right here and how much he loves Stefan Struve, his guy. I'm just saying 
You should go see Looper if you haven't already seen it. I know it's going to sound stupid, uh, and there are a couple couple stupid movie shit in this. For one thing, Joseph Gordon-Levitt trying to do a shitty, shitty Bruce Willis impression, which I feel like Chad or I just on the fly could do a better, or at least as good, a Bruce Willis impression. Um, but once you get past little stuff like that, I'm just saying, Looper, maybe the best time travel movie I've ever seen. Wow. Just saying. Wow. I'm just saying. You are just saying. I feel kind of bad about this one now because I didn't know that our discussion in round three was really going to go the way that it did. But I'm just saying, England, I'm sorry, man. Don't shoot the messenger, but you're probably just not going to get that Anderson Silva, Michael Bisping fight. What? I know that we've been talking about it. I know that people keep saying it's a possibility, but man, you know what time it is in London when they start the UFC pay-per-views here in America at 8 p.m. Mountain Standard Time? The one true time zone? The one true time zone. It's three in the morning (laughs) in London. You think that the UFC is going to be like, hey, Andy, we're going to need you to come over to England and uh, stay up till three in the morning to fight Michael Bisping. I don't think they're going to do that. And I don't think they're going to move the event forward to start it at like four o'clock in the afternoon here in the United States. Just kind of too big of a fight to do that. So sorry, but I'm just saying. Wow, that's a real downer to end the show on. I told you I felt kind of bad about it. I feel bad too, just sitting here watching you. Yeah, wow. Ugh. Well, I'll try to I'll try to buck up. And on for top next of this, week. we got the economy. Yeah, goddamn the economy. Anyway, uh, coming up next week, we'll recap what happens this weekend on uh, UFC on FX Five, and we will also come up with some other stuff to talk about. We will, I'm sure, talk about uh, the third Invicta event, which I'm going to, and which Chad will not watch because he is a sexist pig. When is that? Saturday night. Kansas City. Oh, so I'll be busy. Memorial Hall. Yeah, I'll probably be on the road. Probably be flying back here to Missoula, Montana. You will get back to Missoula International Airport in plenty of time to sit down and watch you some live stream. Don't even play that. I guess the the listeners will have to tune in next week to find out if I did. I guess they will. A little bit of a cliffhanger. Yeah, and they can hear me regale them with all kinds of tales from the big city in Kansas City. Uh, that's the episode for this week. This has been the Co-Main Event Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas from ESPN.com. That's Ben Folks from USA Today and MMAJunkie.com. That's it. That's the show. We're done. We're out. I'm just saying, if you look at the fight card, Invicta, pretty good little fight card. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. You just on fire. <laughs>